What a great privilege and honor it is to assemble together this morning in the way that we are, to in fact express to God our heartfelt devotion and thanksgiving for all that He has done and continues to do for us. Perhaps it would be wise to make one additional announcement. I failed to, to uh, ask Gary to make it, but let's not forget next Sunday at 2 o'clock is the third uh, is the Putnam County Third Sunday Singing here. We host it. So let's all keep that on our calendar one week from today, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And as usual, I believe, our elders typically uh, consider that the evening service, and so we'll not have a 5.30 service next Sunday. Uh, so again, next Sunday, August the 21st, at uh, 2 in the afternoon, the third Sunday singing here in Putnam County. We always look forward to that, a very heartfelt and enriching time of song, and so keep that on your calendar, and let's make plans, if at all we can, to be here on that occasion. As you probably can uh, tell on the wall to my left, we're going to use Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 this morning to reflect, at least for a moment, on that word obey. And so I've entitled the lesson, Obedience. As you and I read passages from the Word of God, we're often, in fact, in such a position we encounter the word obey or some form of it. Maybe it would do us well today to give some appreciation. What does it mean to obey? Can we express that in a way that really sinks the thought into our heart? I believe we not only can, but we should do that. And so let's consider our study in the following way. These introductory remarks, I hope, will prepare our hearts and minds to give some appreciation to this subject and this topic of obedience. May I suggest to you that according to 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, even the angels of heaven are in fact incredibly interested in the marvelous blessings that you and I enjoy in Jesus Christ. You see, those Old Testament worthies, although they served God in many cases the best way that they were able to do it, they in fact lived before Jesus Christ ever came and died. They never knew the marvelous blessings you and I have today in Jesus. They were bereft of them. Although they wondered about them, prophecies indicated something of them, they were so intensely interested. Shouldn't you and I be thankful that we can live day by day faithfully in dedication to the God of heaven? You'll notice on that slide, Jesus came into the world for the purpose of saving sinners. Did He not tell Zacchaeus in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. The world, in fact, as it languishes in sin, was in need of a Savior. And one has come. But as we shall study, His coming makes demands of all of us. And to those of us who, of course, are Christians, those who have dedicated ourselves to Him, it is such that we must obey Him. Let's, in fact, use the first portion of the lesson this morning to highlight some of those attributes. Obedience is demanded, isn't it? It isn't left as an optional matter. It isn't left to your decision and mind, at least whether or not it is a matter of consequence. The God of heaven is great. He, in fact, is all-powerful. Sometimes we use that word omnipotent, do we not? All power, in fact, rests with Him, so much so that He is often described in sovereignty as the ruler over all things. In Daniel 4.25, He even rules in the kingdoms of men. We appreciate that in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, it is highlighted there that He commanded and it was done. He spake and it stood fast. 
Can you imagine the power requisite in His commandment? He simply said that there would be light, and there it was. He simply affirmed that there was to be a firmament, and there it was. It came into existence as a direct consequence of the power of His Word. May I suggest to you that that greatness of God should also allow us to so easily appreciate that He's always right. What God says is always right. Men may disagree and various counsels and considerations of men may in fact have a different viewpoint, but God's always right. In the long ago in Genesis 18.25, that, that thought was presented, wasn't it? And since God cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2, everything He says is right. That leads us to that third point. That means He has the exclusive right to demand obedience. Oh, it's true. There are times that men make statements of commandment, and sometimes you and I as subjects thereto may not completely agree, and we may not fully obey for some reason or another. But God, we must obey Him. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, isn't it commented on that occasion that there is none else? I am God, He said, and there is none like me. If you and I appreciate, of course, that attribute to God, if we respect Him and fear Him, then these thoughts that follow rather easily are understood. Dennis read just a moment ago from Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Let us notice there how this word obey is used and see what implications there are for you and me today. Though He, that's Jesus, were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Isn't it fantastic to notice then that Jesus learned obedience? While He, of course, was living in the flesh, He served dutifully beneath the tutelage of His parents. And not only that, when the time of the cross came, He obeyed His heavenly Father in every regard. Though He prayed earnestly in that Garden of Gethsemane, Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. He was quick to say, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew 26, 39. In fairness, can't we say then he was obedient in every way to his heavenly Father? And the text went on to say, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he in fact proceeded sinlessly through all the realms and avenues of this life, and it says, in being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. But not to everybody, he said, unto all them that obey him. If one fails to obey Jesus, there will be no eternal life. If one fails then to obey the Master himself, there is no promise of eternal life for that one. How critical then is obedience? It's absolutely vital, isn't it? As you and I arrive at the last page in the Bible in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, on that occasion we notice, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Obedience so often is lifted to a high point of consideration. May I invite you to notice as we come near the bottom of that slide, that the Word of God is filled, it's replete with examples of individuals who responded to the commands of God, sometimes obediently, sometimes not. 
I would call to your attention about knowing the ark first. There was a gentleman in the long distant past who the God of heaven said that this man found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 verse 8. And God gave him instructions to construct an ark, a massive vessel, but he did it. He made it exactly the length, the width, and the height. He made it exactly the number of stories and doors and floors. Isn't it interesting that verse 22 of Genesis 6 says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Was Noah obedient? He was. Maybe consider another one. What about Moses? This time in regard to the construction of the tabernacle. We each remember that God had given some very definitive and very careful descriptions about the furniture and the various and sundry elements of that tabernacle, but yet this statement is made. Thus did Moses, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So question, was Moses obedient? The text says that he was. At this point, might we then look at another. What about Joshua chapter 6? The scene, of course, was a very telling one, wasn't it? The children of Israel had advanced, crossed the Jordan River, and as they did so, the first major city to be engaged in battle was Jericho. You and I remember so well what it was that took place. Surely it must be regarded as one of the most unorthodox military strategies in the entire history of the world. God told Joshua, you march around Jericho once a day for six days. You do it in silence. Don't say a word. And then on day number seven, you march around it seven times. And when you do, you finally blow the trumpets and the wall of the city will fall. The people indeed did exactly what God said. Did they obey? At least in regard to that aspect, they did. One more time, we notice that this matter of obedience is lifted to such a high degree. It is worthy of our study, it would seem to me, this morning. Maybe one last thought on that slide before we use it to proceed to the next. If all these matters in the Old Testament lifted so sweetly the disposition of obedience, what about then today becoming a Christian? Has the book of God revealed how to become a Christian? And then must we do exactly those things in order to become one? That'll be one of the matters we'll study. Can't you just imagine how strong that degree of consideration must be? The next slide will begin our further development of these things. So may I ask, as we think about obedience, how would we define it? I've tried to build this up in a somewhat slow fashion, so I hope that you'll bear with me. Because as we put it together, I've tried to underline several things on occasion throughout our study this morning. So far as we've studied about Moses and Noah and Joshua and some of the others, isn't it easy to see then that obedience first involves doing what God says to do? When Noah constructed the ark... Did God say what wood was to be used? Yes, He did. It was gopher wood, and so no substitute was going to work. Because God said the character of the wood was to be the gopher wood, that eliminated sycamore and oak and pine and cedar and everything else. 
Noah then had the charge to go and find a sufficient amount of gopher wood and thus use that to construct that rather majestic ark. Look at some of these additional examples. We've already highlighted about Noah, but perhaps Moses would be deserving of some more attention as well. When you and I studied on Sunday morning a number of months ago about the tabernacle and its furnishings, I'm sure many of us would perhaps be willing to say, but that doesn't seem exactly reasonable. After all, the Ark of the Covenant, it seems, was too short. Why didn't you put legs under it? Because God didn't say to. Or why not, in fact, cover the staves differently? After all, they need to be strong enough to support this. God didn't say to. Obedience, you see, means doing what God says. Maybe many in the human family often would say, but that doesn't make any sense. That's what is involved in walking by faith, isn't it? Obedience means to do what God says. And could I ask you to notice... You and I could revisit Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And also think about, of course, obedience or rather disobedience on that occasion. God, after He had created them and placed them in that garden that He had made, He gave them this commandment, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. For the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The God of heaven thus had asserted something. Here, in particular, it was something not to do. You do not eat of that tree, he said. Now, you and I notice that Adam and Eve chose not to obey. They didn't do what God said. In fact, they did the opposite of it. They chose to partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You and I know well that that example perhaps leads us to notice what severe, what dire, what terrible consequences there were. They knew they had violated the command of God. They understood they were now living in sin. They had been separated from the God that made them. They did die spiritually that day, didn't they? Spiritual death is being separated from God, and they finally knew what that was like. And it was awful. I hope all of us never lose the tenderness of heart to appreciate what spiritual death is. Separation from God. And if at any time we find ourselves from Him, let's rush back to His side so that we can again be in fellowship with all the fullness of His being. Adam and Eve's disobedience perhaps leads you to notice even Paul's assertions to the Galatians, as well as the Old Testament example of Saul. God told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, Go and destroy the Amalekites. Did Saul do it? He destroyed most of them, but he didn't destroy all of them. He chose to disobey. The consequences, again, were rather extreme, weren't they? God took the kingdom from him because he wasn't fit to have it any longer and gave it to one better than he. It may well be, in light of those things, we can conclude that little section by highlighting obedience, at least to this degree, is familiar to us. It means to do what we're told to do. But obedience goes further than that. Look at the next part of that slide with me, would you? 
obedience involves not only doing what God says, but it involves doing it the way He says to do it. That too is a vital matter so frequently of interesting character within the pages of the Word of God. Again, might I notice, not only doing what God says to do, but to do the particular matter in the way that He says to do it. One more time, could you look at a few thoughts and some examples? First of all, under the banner of correct Bible interpretation, we know that if God doesn't provide the means of accomplishing it, then that is left to us. That's left as an expedient matter, a matter of liberty. But when He does state the specific of the way it's to be done, that too is a part of the obedience and it must be respected. A case in point might be Nadab and Abihu. As you revisit Leviticus 10 verses 1 to 3 with me, there was this interesting scene where religious folk were involved in doing something rather notable. It was the activity at the tabernacle. They were, of course, involved in making appropriate provision for sacrifices, and so as they made the fire in the proper place, the text simply says they offered strange fire which He commanded them not. Notice God had specified what fire was to be used, and they chose to do it differently. Although many might say, but we're worshiping, aren't we? We, in fact, had fire, didn't we? That may be but you didn't do it the way that God said for it to be done. And therefore, we notice God took their lives. In the verses that follow, what a notable and memorable event in Israelite history when here were the two leading priests of the day and their lives were taken because they did not obey. It's true, they were involved in religious work, weren't they? But they were utilizing fire which God had not commanded. Isn't it true that that degree of consideration takes us to the final one on that slide? Yet another example taken from the very life of the gentleman named David. David was well known, of course, as the second king of Israel. He was one who in times was described as a man after God's own heart. He was the sweet singer, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But on that occasion, of 1 Chronicles 13, what happened? After everything had been made ready at the capital grounds, David was wishing and desirous of bringing the Ark of the Covenant so that it could be placed in the very same city where his capital was. I think we'd all agree David's idea was a good one, to consolidate the religious center and the civil center of the country. Problem is, how did David and the others go about trying to bring the Ark from its current residence to the place where the capital city was. They loaded it on a cart. And you and I remember, even David admitted, in the aftermath of Uzzah's death, we didn't follow the commandments of God. He knew that the wrong people had tried to carry it. He knew that they tried to transport it in a way God hadn't commanded. Question, did David understand that obeying God requires not only doing what he says, but doing it the way that he says? David finally recognized it and even confessed it, didn't he, in 1 Chronicles 15 too. This issue of thinking of obedience in that regard allows us to transition to this slide as well, which might I invite you to make an application to our present day. In Romans 10 verse 13, 
the inspired writer says, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question, how do you call on the name of God? At that point, it sounds as if that's rather open, rather vague, isn't it? So does that mean that if I merely say and call by verbal means on the God of heaven, is that enough to save me? Some so think. But if God anywhere ever identifies the means of calling on Him, then that would have to be respected. And He tells us, doesn't He? How does one call on the name of the Lord? Acts twenty two sixteen. we might ask, here is a clear-cut example. How did Saul of Tarsus do it? Ananias, that disciple, came to Saul and said, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? How did Saul call on the name of the Lord? It was in a series of acts culminating in baptism. And may I say today, that still is the only New Testament means in which it is revealed to us how we call on Him. In fact, isn't it true? Jesus Himself said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. So to call on the name of the Lord is to obey the gospel. Each of us then should carefully ask, Have I called on Him the way He said I must? To those of us that have, may we be thankful that God's Word has presented what we must do, and again, upon our obedience thereto, eternal life shall be ours. Calling on the name of the Lord. Doesn't it remind you and me as well how human reasoning is so unnecessary and quite frankly so dangerous? Many in the religious world of our day would try to offer their ideas of what's involved in calling on the name of the Lord. But why don't we just allow a thus saith the Lord to, to complete that discussion, just as we've done it. Let's go move forward in our discussion this morning. So far we've noted obedience involves doing what God says in the way that He says. But it does seem like one more thought is reasonable to include. Let's study this one as well, and I've underlined it as well. Obedience to God requires doing what He says, the way that He says, for the reason that He says. For the reason that He says. As you and I study the 66 Bible books, and we encounter instances of obedience and also those of disobedience, we are led to ponder also this attribute of obedience. Sometimes it's very much true that God doesn't always give us the reasons why. And on those instances, we must be those who walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We must be those who happily say, Lord, thy servant heareth. Acts 9, verse 6. But might we say, when He does give us the reason, when He does offer and provide reason, that too must be regarded as important. Let's think about that in light of this. What about some of the attributes of our worship and some of the characteristics of our service to God today? Maybe there's a gentleman who is a rather wealthy businessman. And he, of course, maybe oversees a rather prominently wealthy company. What if he simply gives to the church because it's a good tax write-off? 
would God look upon that in as wholesome and as healthy a way? We understand God would use the money. And we understand God would allow it to redound to the blessing of His kingdom. But what about the benefit for the man? The text says, doesn't it, that one must be a cheerful giver, not of necessity. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6-8. through 8. You and I would say that at least the man's heart ought to ultimately be moved in the direction of appreciating the desire that would go along with giving, not to do it simply because it's a good tax write-off. In that instance, something about the motivation, something about the love and the compelling factor behind it would at least have something to say. May I suggest to you at the bottom of the slide comes another consideration of baptism. Why do you and I baptize? We understand because God said to. But does the New Testament inform us of anything that's accomplished in it? that would be a vital matter in understanding what it is that's involved in that act. Let's revisit the day of Pentecost for just a moment. In Acts 2, in verse number 37, those on Pentecost, after the conclusion of Peter's sermon, they themselves, at least in part, they were recognizing of the guilt of what they'd done. Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's a very compelling thing to revisit what must have been racing through their mind. The Son of God had been put to death. Peter had emphasized that part point to them, and they knew they had had a part in it. They had been amongst those who perhaps were crying out, Crucify Him! And the very sinless, great Son of God had gone to the cross, giving His life, and they knew that their hands, in essence, had a part in it. What shall we do? They cried. In the very next verse, Peter said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In the consideration of that verse, he said, Repent and be baptized. So two verbs were utilized, two things they had to immediately do. And then he explained the authority of it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Son of God. The authority of heaven. But then this little phrase is inserted, for the remission of sins. The word for, as we've often noted in our study, has a prospective look. It is looking forward to the eventuality of something. It's not because their sins were already forgiven. It's because that in this act of repentance and baptism, they would be forgiven. And so that highlights for you and me a vital understanding of baptism. You and I then would anticipate that as a person, a candidate, were being prepared to be baptized. That person would need to understand that his or her sins were not already forgiven, but were going to be in light of their obedience to that act of baptism. Not only that. As you close that particular slide with me, isn't that what Paul was led to understand in Acts 22? Could you note with me yet again? Here was a man who himself for three days had been blinded. On the road to Damascus, he'd been struck blind and had been unable to see. Ananias, that faithful disciple, came to him, and it was Ananias who said, Why are you waiting, Paul? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. 
This man was penitent. For three days he'd been fasting. He wanted to know what the Lord demanded of him. But his sins hadn't been forgiven because Ananias said he was still in them. Paul wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. He was saved when he got to Damascus and he did what Ananias told him to do for the reason he was to do it. Thanks be unto God that we have examples like that one to instill in us the sweet disposition of obedience. This next slide and the last one of our lesson today ask us to reflect ourselves then on all of these avenues. What if you or I fail to do what God says to do? That clearly is disobedience. What if we do what He says but in a way different than He says? That still is disobedience. What if we do what He says in the way He says but for a different reason than He says? That's still disobedience. Doesn't it highlight within us then a deep desire to understand the Word of God and rightly divide it. 2 Timothy 2.15, applying its precepts to our life and heart so that we always can be those who are obedient and those, of course, who will inherit eternal life. As we summarize some of those things on this slide, doesn't that place a high value on our appreciation and our proper division of the Bible? It really does, doesn't it? When you and I arrive at the closing book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, we notice that there is a picturesque description of those who will be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those, of course, who are those who have clothed themselves with the righteousness of the Word of God. Does that fit you today and me? Are you living in faithful obedience to these words? Are you doing what He says, the way He says, for the reason He says? If today there would be someone in our audience for whom that's not the description, maybe you have openly done things, though once a Christian you have begun to fail to live that way. Doesn't the Word of God touch your heart today with a, with a strong word of condemnation? Doesn't it cause questions to fill your heart and mind, thinking about what you once knew and where you are today? We'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. We'd be honored, in fact, to make note of your confession as well as, of course, your repentance. But may I say, if there's someone here who's never become a Christian, you've never yet rendered initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will never be a better day than this one, the 14th day of August, 2016. Your spiritual birthday it could be. A day when you, in fact, are placed into Christ, Galatians 3.26, the day in which you become a member of the only saved organization on earth, the church, Acts 2.47. The day in which your name is put into the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20.15. The day in which you yourself can now have the realistic hope of heaven. If we could help you today, and we'd be happy to do it, realize the plan of salvation is what you must obey, and that doesn't come from me or even our elders. It comes from Jesus Himself. He says, you must believe in me, John 8, 24. Do you believe in Jesus with all of your heart? He furthermore says, you must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Have you done that? Are you willing to do that? You must also confess His name as the Son of God, required in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. 
and finally to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness, for the remission of sins. Today, what a great, great day it could be as you become one who walks in newness of life, Romans 6 verse 4. Today, if we could be of help to anybody... In one of these ways, we would only implore you, we would beg of you to let us know how we can help, and that you would do it at once. While together we stand and while we sing.